Hi, this is Conrad Coates. You may remember me as Admiral Terrell from Star Trek Discovery, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On this episode, we're taking a trip into modern Trek as we chat with an actor who has made multiple appearances in Star Trek Discovery as a certain pointy-eared Starfleet brass. That person is Conrad Coates. Conrad's resume spans an impressive catalog over the course of several decades, showing his true range as a performer. You may have seen him previously in shows and films like The Dresden Files, Degrassi The Next Generation, Kung Fu The Legend Continues, Relic Hunter, La Femme Nikita, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, Supernatural, Saw Two, Smallville, X-Men Apocalypse, A Dog's Journey, and plenty of other things that we're going to talk about today. And while this is a Star Trek show, we can't ignore Conrad's contribution to another epic sci-fi franchise, Defiance, where he played Tevgin, a role that has a special place in Conrad's heart. When it comes to Trek, Conrad is a part of Star Trek Discovery, where he's played Admiral Terrell in four episodes of the first season. This high-ranking member of Starfleet is a Vulcan who can be seen in Choose Your Pain, Leth, or Lethe, I have no idea how to say that name, See Vis Passum Parabellum, and Into the Forest I Go. And those pretentious titles, by the way, are proof that Discovery is just as much Trek as the original series and everything else Star Trek out there. Best of all, Conrad is a Trekkie, true and true, and a master of his craft who imparts his skills today while instructing at his own acting academy. We're lucky to get a little bit of a free lesson from him today, as Conrad teaches us what it takes to become a Vulcan. So open all channels and set your hailing frequencies to Trek Untold. We've got another good episode coming up. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. 
Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the line, you guys may remember him as Admiral Terrell from Star Trek Discovery. But the rest of us out there in the real everyday world know him as Conrad Coates. Conrad, how's it going today? <laughs> very funny, Matthew. I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and we've got a lot to talk about because you've had quite a prolific career, and uh, you know I think we're going to have some exciting discussions today. So let's uh, just jump on in with the first question I give all of my guests, and that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh my goodness. Uh, definitely when I was a kid watching William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, and you know, to be honest, I wasn't really a fan of, of, of Star Trek at that time. I, I didn't quite... Get it, I guess. I don't know. There was something very immature in my thinking, I suppose. But it wasn't until, uh, you know, I watched The Next Generation, the Luke Picard as the captain. There was episodes in there that just so spoke to me, like really, really spoke to me. And that's when I became a real fan of Star Trek. And of course, I love all the movies. I, I love all the movies. I think. I'm an action guy. I love action. So they had a good balance of philosophy and action. So they were very entertaining and opened me up to a different way of thinking at times. Now, I'm not going to expect you to remember an exact name of any episodes. I'm not going to nerd you out that hard here today, but uh, do you have any episodes of TNG that you like the best? There was one. I can't give you a number. Of course, I can't give you a title, but there was there was a point about they were, of course, in another world, and they were speaking of how on this planet they could not fix a problem and because they did not have enough money to fix the problem. And that struck me as that's where we're at right now. We always think that money is the thing that is needed to fix the problem. And what COVID has exposed is that it's not money. It's people's spirit and generosity and openness and their heart. That's how we solve problems, not with money. And so from that time till now, I kind of like run things through that philosophy of like, why is it money to make the world go around? It's not money. And that's one of the things, again, you know, to come back to Star Trek and the whole philosophy of it for me anyways, is, is, are these type of ideas. And it's, um, I can see how it brings the community together for sure. Ah, very interesting. All right. I'm sure somebody out there knows exactly which episode you're talking about too. So I'll, I'll let them figure that one out. But All right. uh, let's take a jump into uh, the past a little bit though. I'd like to know a little bit about you, in your childhood growing up. Now, you grew up in England, then you moved to Canada, correct? Yes. So tell us a little about your childhood, who your parents were, what they did, and uh, what little Conrad wanted to be when he grew up. So uh, I was born in London, England. Uh, my parents were Jamaican. Uh, they met in England, had me. Uh, later, went to, uh, I went to an all-boys um, school, uh, Ravenstone, that I remember when I was a kid in uh, England. Later, uh, moved to uh, Ottawa, Canada. My mother didn't want to be in England uh, anymore. She didn't like the situation there. And um, so I went to a school, got my education uh, in Canada, studied uh, theater for a number of years before I even stepped in front of a camera, like more than 10 years, actually, in the, in the Canadian theater scene, a couple seasons at Stratford Theater, where Justin Bieber was born and discovered. And... Um, Slowly made my way, yeah, to L.A. and to all points beyond. So what made you as a kid think that you wanted to become an actor? Nothing made me think I wanted to become an actor. 
actually uh what i what i was actually going for was uh to be a pilot i was actually you know on my own trying to get a private uh pilot's license and you know was thinking of doing some christian missionary work flying into you know less fortunate communities you know with a small cessna or so uh but the acting thing i i really kind of backed into it uh, i was invited to do a um improv class like the first class with second city was free at that time it was an introduction and i went and i had an epiphany i i realized like wow this is the world that i want to be in i, I want to do this and um that's when i started to study the classics and really went into shakespeare headlong for like i say 10 years that's that's all i wanted to do um and then i then i started to do some film and television so it's been very varied, but I'm really kind of glad that it happened. I was invited by a friend to go, and like I say, had an epiphany. All right, very cool. So from aviation to acting, that's that's pretty awesome. How about that? Didn't even get to the bees. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned it briefly, but uh, tell us a little bit more about where you went to improve your acting skills. I think when most people go to theater school, they're going there right out of, say, high school. And I didn't do that right out of high school. I, I went to, you know, kind of work as a, a laborer, I think, right after high school. And then I, then I realized, you know, okay, maybe I'd like to do some journalism. So I was studying journalism uh, and then switched again to flying planes. So when I was started to come to train at acting, because again, I just sort of like discovered that, that I... I was older than everybody else that was already had gone to uh, a theater school, really. So what I did was I found coaches. I found people who were at the top of their field, and I would pay them anywhere from $75 to $100 an hour to just work with me, just one-on-one. -on -one. And I would prepare for roles uh, that way, and I kind of like learned on the job, flying by the seat of my pants, full of fear and dread um, that this was not going to work. But it, it made me a much more individual actor as opposed to somebody who went to a certain school and those kind of actors have that kind of style. And you know what you're going to get from those kind of actors because they went to this school and that's their style. I didn't have a style. I just was just freewheeling it all the way. Interesting. Now, I'm curious what your parents thought of this as well, because you basically you mentioned you wanted to be a journalist. You thought you were going to be a pilot. Now you're doing acting. So what was their take on this situation, yeah. this, this evolving career situation with Conrad? As my mother would say, boy, you do some things. And uh, it's that's just the way I've, I've always I've always been like that. Like I'm an only kid um, by my mother, and I just would always have sort of individual thoughts about things, whatever interested me. That's the, that's the direction that I would go. So in a way, you know, they're surprised, but eh, not really surprised <laughs> at all. My father was a lawyer and, you know, I, in the beginning, you know, as well, very early, you know, I thought, yeah, I want to be a, a lawyer, but I really come to realize that, you know, lawyers are the greatest actors of them all, really. And they got the best theater, the court, and they've given the performance of their lives, you know, trying to save somebody else's Absolutely. ass in some way. 
you know, so there, you know, he's, he's an actor in, in his own right, in his own time. But uh, I find that what I'm doing now to be the most satisfying of all of the things that I ever thought I'd want to do. This one has, has been fueling me and it's been fueling me now for almost 32 years. So something doing, doing something right. And as you touched on a few minutes earlier, you did a lot of Shakespearean work in the beginning. In fact, you did uh, two seasons at Stratford Shakespearean Festival, which is one of the most prominent Shakespearean and theater arts festivals in the world. Uh, tell us a little, a little bit about your time there and uh, what you did there, what you learned there. Oh, <clears throat> periods and styles. I had to technically work a thrust stage. And for folks who don't know what that means, what is a, what is a thrust stage? Okay, so a thrust stage is almost like a three. So if you're in a room and you have, Three walls in a room is really four, but the fourth one is sort of turned sideways and is behind you. And the other three walls are now where the audience is. And if you go into the middle of whatever room you're in and look, you'll see that the person in the corner to the wall that is behind you, they're behind you. And on the other side, they're behind you. So there's a different way of presentation and performing that it's you're, you're really working almost at 180 degrees from one side of your left all the way 180 degrees to the right, but behind you as well. So you're constantly turning. You've got to be technically always moving and turning and being natural and speaking out because, you know, in Stratford, the seats were, you know, there was that theater at that time, L 1800 seats. Uh, it used to hold something like over 2000 they engineered it and made it a little bit smaller because it's very demanding for an actor to talk all the way out with sometimes very little electrical assistance. And by that, I mean the microphone or anything like that. You have to do it all with your voice. So there's, you know, that really, there's a lot of air happening. So in that, that's what it, working on a thrust with demands. And I, and I love that because uh, you're moving you're not just standing and delivering you're moving and so you're you're allowed to be more natural in your presentation love that you know we've had a lot of guests who have done shakespearean work uh some of the folks from the original series like carl held and garth pillsbury and uh, more recently also from discovery and other fellow canadian also harry judge yeah um so you know i'm curious about how you interpret and how you approach acting a shakespearean scene because it is essentially another language yeah, you know, but the way that the language was used then, we don't use language in that way anymore. You know, even when we swear at somebody, you know, it's generally like one word or two words. But when you swore back in the 1700s, it was a sentence. <laughs> it was a paragraph, you know. So the language is being used with all of these images. Now we have film and television and we've become very accustomed to our images being fed to us. At that time, the language generated the images. And if you can hook into the imagery of whatever it is that you're talking about, it will transport you. The ideas become bigger, the breath becomes bigger, the thoughts become bigger, the ideas are bigger. And now this conversation is happening between two characters, two actors that are volleying a ball back and forth, sorry for the sports analogy, but it's something that has to be energetically moving back and forth. And Shakespeare understood this at the time, as a lot of the writers at the time. They knew that it's the language that moves you. And it, it's not that the language is different. It's the language is used in a different way. And that's, once you understand that, it, it's, 
it sounds like I'm talking to you right now in everyday common mid-Atlantic English. You know, it's not anything that's put on. It's actually we don't use language in the same way. We've taken away the power of the word and given it to the image, which is television and that media. That's very true. Now, of all these Shakespearean roles that you got to portray on stage, which one was the experience you enjoyed the most? Uh, so in Romeo and Juliet, I've played a few characters in Romeo and Juliet. I played Ben Bolio, his cousin, the prince, um, and I also played the apothecary. Not all in the same production, different productions. That'd be pretty crazy if you did, though. Yeah, it, w- it, would, be, it would be, actually. <laughs> uh, but um, playing... Playing Benvolio was great because we had these fight scenes. So there was a lot of, you know, sword fighting, stage fighting. I, and I love anything to do physical, you know, with acting at the same time. I, I love being able to be a physical actor in, in whatever it is I'm working on. But uh, one of my favorite characters was the apothecary. And in one production, I played both Benvolio and the apothecary. Now, I'm the only black actor in a company of 16 actors and I was playing two roles <laughs> and we were playing in a theater that was in the round <clears throat> and I came out as the apothecary being seen for the first time as the apothecary you've seen me I think two other scenes previous as Benvolio and now I'm coming out as the apothecary yes I've got a completely different costume on and I'm walking a little bit different and I've got some facial hair on and then I could hear somebody in the audience behind me going in out of the dark is that the same actor as Ben Bolio? <laughs> and the other person goes, I don't think it is. I think it's a different actor. <laughs> and away we went. And so I, I really enjoyed coming on every single night, being seen one way and not being recognized as another character in the exact same production. I, but that, that makes me laugh, actually. Yeah, that's like the ultimate compliment for an actor, too, to be that lost in the role that they can't tell you apart. Yes. Fabulous. Love it. Uh, that's brilliant. So I'd like to know then, uh, so you're doing all the theater work. Eventually you get on to TV. So what was your first on-screen TV gig? What was it like? Um, it was wonderful, actually. Because uh, you know that that's the thing where you ultimately want to kind of get to. If you're talking about stages of a career, you know, that I've done one stage and now I'm trying to get to the second and third stage and move up a level, have more responsibility, carry more of the show. And, uh, you know, with this production, I was a runaway slave. So I kind of like the idea that I'm trying to get away. But at the time, if we're talking about the times and being a slave, then that means we're going to have to ride horse or be on foot. And in this production, I had to ride a horse. So I got to uh, get riding lessons for a week before we even started shooting. And for me, I've always wanted to ride a horse. And I never had an opportunity to before. So here it was. I'm getting one of my dreams come true and I'm getting proper lessons on how to do it. And I'm going to be recorded on a television show, the Campbell's and, you know, do all of that. So that, that was very special. That gig, my first gig. Now you've had a pretty prolific career, as we mentioned, I'm just going to run down just a few of the things you've done so far. Uh, and I say so far, because, you know, I'm sure there's going to be another hundred, 200 more by the time you're finished all this acting stuff, but uh, you've been in Tron Legacy, you've been in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, Lightning Thief, uh, Saving Hope, Warehouse 13, Supernatural, La Femme de Kida, The Dresden Files, so many others. Uh, and you've been, of course, in many sci-fi or, or more supernatural type shows, not just, of course, the supernatural show we just mentioned a minute ago, but you've been in things like Relic Hunter, Forever Night, Beyond Reality, Sci Factor, 
and Earth Final Conflict, to name just a few. But the one I think we have to ask about, because this is, after all, a Star Trek show, is Euron William Shatner's baby, his love child of a show, uh, and that was Tech War. And you were in the episode Carlotta's Room. You played Dr. Reingold, and you got to do a scene with uh, two of the stars, Greg Evigan and Maria Del Mar. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, did you get to meet Shatner while you were on that set? And uh, what did you think about that very bizarre sci-fi show that is Tech Wars? Yeah, wow, you're just going right back, way back into the dust, aren't you? That's, oh, we dig. We dig on Trek Untold. That's what we, we do here. We really dug on that one. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, okay, so to answer the obvious question, no, I did not get to meet Mr. Shatner. So I'm a I'm a I'm a huge fan. Um, this album has been, which is one of my favorite, just in my top fives. I got to tell you that right now. Everybody, go get that album. That's a fabulous song. But Tech War, uh, yeah, it was all very different, and that's that's a long time ago. I'm talking over twenty something years ago. And so the technology and the way that we move the camera and the look of everything, you know, you can it's almost, it's, it feels like two different eras in a way. Maria Damara still continued to work with, and I can barely remember the episode. I'm really like scrambling through my memory bank here to kind of come up with something, but I, I, it's so long ago, man. Like you totally got me on that. Well, I actually just watched that one right before this interview, in fact, uh, to kind of remind myself of it as well. And basically, where, if I, where, yeah, where I went that deep. I, I found where, it. Where, 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 I will send you a link later. Oh, my God, man. That's, uh, I got hair. <laughs> yeah, that one, it's all about, it's like basically some uh, politician or person. It's like a murder mystery episode that I think involves some drugs or something like that. Uh, and you were a doctor who gets basically questioned by those two leads. Um, so, yeah, you're in like a nice fairly clinical looking doctor's office of the future. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty bizarre show. It's a pretty bizarre episode. Wow. Yeah. See, I can't even remember any of that. That's, that's awesome. So I, I look forward to uh, having a good laugh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, around that same time, you actually did another show uh, that was a reboot of a much, much older show. And that was car 54. Where are you? Yeah. And uh, I, so according to that, you played a, a district attorney character. Do you yeah. remember that? Yes, I did. So I'm kind of curious because you mentioned you know, your your father was a lawyer. So did you go to him, ask him some questions about how to basically lawyer on TV? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I, by this point, my father is, uh, yeah, he's not around. He's not really involved in my life uh, at this point. Uh, he, he was told that I was an actor and uh, he always felt like, you know, can, can he, can he make a liver be, make a living being an actor? So yes, dad. Yes. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't draw on any information for him for that. Actually, it's pretty, it's pretty funny too. Uh, but I love being on the show, uh, Nipsey Russell. That was that was a treat to uh, meet him. Oh yeah, what's it like to work with Nipsey oh, Russell? I mean, man. he's a real legend no, right there. He, like, you know, like coming from another generation, and I, and I grew up kind of like watching, you know, his stuff, and uh, and then you know he's he, he made it. You know what I mean? And now I'm like, this is like really early in my career. Like this might even be one of the first 10, 10 shows I did on television kind of thing or on film. And uh, so to work with him and there was a couple of other actors as well. Uh, Jeremy Pifkin, like that's the first time that I see Jeremy Pifkin. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who he was, but to watch him work. And then 15 years later, you see him in help me he's the agent for uh, i can't remember the name of the show but it's the boys and they're trying to like 
you know, make it. And he's this fast talking lawyer. I can see the genesis of that character. And it's so it's, it's fascinating. That was, that was, a, that was an excellent show to learn. I love working with actors or being with directors or a designer where I'm learning something. That's, I think, part of the secret to my longevity is like, every time I go on a show, I'm not just there to do my gig. I want to learn something from somebody. It makes it more worthwhile to get up and go there. If it's a bad day, I can turn and I can enjoy somebody else's artistry. You were talking about uh, Jeremy Piven from Entourage, right? That's it, Entourage. Thank you. Yeah, all the way. You know, Car 54 is like a very much forgotten movie today. I, I remember actually watching it when it came out, and it's got like a pretty, pretty great cast, too. It's got Fran Drescher, Rosie O'Donnell. We got uh, David Johansson, which yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a huge film. It's a huge film in, in terms of those, the people at that time, like where they were at. Like they were very popular actors or not really carrying their own shows or their own films, like, you know, with Rosie O'Donnell for sure. You know, like all of, like you get to see the beginnings of all of this. And so in a way, like I'm at the beginning of my beginning of their beginnings. You know what I mean? We're all kind of like going together. You know, it's, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like that's, that's a very special film for me. And with like so many great comedians on that set too, was it like hard to actually keep a straight face during all the scenes? Oh yeah, there was a lot of improvising going on. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I think that that's sort of what the, the magic that you can't put into a script. You know what I mean? You have to allow your talent to run, you gotta like, to sort of kind of give them, these are the these are the lines, and you can paint outside the lines, but don't go too far off the page. You know, like you can go over here a little bit, and you can go over here a little bit, and everybody had that skill in that film, for sure, it was wonderful. Yeah, if anybody hasn't seen that movie, I recommend you guys check out Car 54, Where Are You? The 1994 film. Of course, check out the original TV series too, if you haven't seen it, but the movie is worth a revisit, for sure. Yeah. So I gotta talk to you now about one of my favorite things growing up as a kid, well, no, no, I wasn't a kid, I was watching, who am I kidding? Uh, I want to ask you about one of my favorite things that I was watching not that long ago, and that's Degrassi, The Next Generation. I loved that show. You know, we got it here in America, I think a few years after Canada had it, obviously, first. Um, but yeah, I, I loved Degrassi, and when I was looking through the credits, and I, and I saw Degrassi there, and I was like, oh my god, you're the father of Drake. <laughs> that's insane. Uh, <laughs> you play the father of the character Jimmy Brooks, played by Aubrey Graham, who we now know is Drake. Yep. I mean, pretty much that, that speaks for itself. Yep. Uh, he's done quite well for himself, I'd say. Oh, I think he's, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd agree. <laughs> so how did you like working with this teen who eventually become like one of the biggest music stars of all time? And did you know back then he was going to be something special? Yep, absolutely. So it was in maybe the last year for him, the last season, coming up to the last season for him, he knew that uh, he was no longer going to be in the show. And we had done a couple of episodes together and I'm playing his father. So clearly, you know, there is an age difference and there is sort of, you know, we're playing it. We're playing elders, elder to, you know, younger gentlemen coming into the world kind of thing, leaving school, finding his way. And so we had, we had that natural thing happening between us. I really, really, really liked working with him. I got to tell you that I really did. And the friends of and the circle that he had on the set, like we were always together because our scenes were always together, clearly. And, uh, you know, I said to him one day, I went, what are you, what are you going to do? Like when you leave, what, what are you going to do? He goes, oh, I'm going to work on my music. He didn't, didn't, didn't hesitate. And I go, really? He goes, oh, yeah, I got, I got tons of it. I got tons of it. I'm just, I'm going to focus on that now when I leave here. And I looked at him and I went, yeah. And he goes, yeah, it's going to happen. I went, yeah, I believe you. And it has. Yeah, so you were there when Jimmy was, you know, or Arby rather, was a little kid, grew up to be much, much older as the show went on. Yep. Uh, how would you describe his evolution as an actor? 
you know, obviously music is his thing. You know what I mean? He was an incredible actor because he had to act, particularly after he got shot, you know, he had to now act out of a wheelchair. And the world, like, you know, like the viewing audience for Degrassi, it's, a, it's amazing to me. And they still, it's still in production. It's sort of morphed into something else, but it's the, the stories and the investigations for young people to share their experiences and their struggles and the pain and the confusion, all that, like that's what Degrassi really, really has. And that's what's made it such a successful franchise. He's now been shot and he's in a wheelchair. And people believe that he actually was a paraplegic and he played it like he played it really well. And when, you know, cut was called, you know, there'd be a beat, another beat, and then he'd get out of the chair. And sometimes it was sort of like, oh, man, don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's weird. You know, like he, like, he, no, he really embraced whatever he was doing. And that's, that's something that's clearly in his music. You got to be in the moment. And he had that. He had that presence. The character was with the show for so long. And he could, you know, morph and change himself into now presenting his whole performance, not with your full body. Like I just told you earlier, I like physical, like being a physical actor. Well, part of his instrument now is denied and he had to sit in the chair. It was wonderful. He was very successful at it. Yeah, I thought that was such a bold choice also from Degrassi to do that to Aubrey. And uh, I thought it was amazing also. And I'm glad you brought up him being in the wheelchair because it also kind of brings me up to that that episode where that happens, where he gets shot, you know, because uh, I was watching it here in America. At that point, it was, again, we're a few years behind what's happening in Canada in terms of what's mm -hmm. airing here. Mm -hmm. And you know, I saw it the first time. Actually, the first time I think they aired it, they actually skipped over that episode, I think. Wow. And uh, yeah, and so then I had to catch it like later on. I also am getting it mixed up. But basically, it was it was aired like once, then it got censored for a bit and just was pulled. And then eventually it came back. But it was pretty powerful, especially here in America with what goes on here uh, and continues to sadly go on here. Uh, but what did you think of them covering that topic and how it ultimately played out? Well, you know, art imitates life. Life imitates art. You know, it's that chicken question, egg first, what, you know, it's all simultaneous. It's all a comment. It's all an observation. It's all happening. It's buzzing, blooming confusion. It's like, again, that's, that's what's made Degrassi so successful. They're commenting about something that is happening to people and communities right now. They're, they're not fantasy taking you somewhere like we do in science fiction or anything like that. We're dealing stuff with stuff that's really right here. To say that it's brave, I don't think so. To say that it's necessary, absolutely. That's the way it is. So, Conrad, before we jump into our Star Trek discussion, there is one other pretty big sci-fi series that you were a part of, and that is Defiance. And yeah. you were there for, for quite some time as the character uh, Tevgin. I hope I'm saying that right. Because yeah, I never were. actually got a chance to watch Defiance. Yeah, yeah. You were the leader of the Omec race. You had yeah. a really amazing costume, a great makeup job. Uh, it's basically kind of like, I feel like Game of Thrones with aliens in it. Maybe that's an accurate uh, description. Wow. wow, okay. How did you enjoy your time on Defiance? I love Defiance. That's one of those, you know, top five moments. I mean, for sure. Characters, for sure. And because the show was already established, they'd done two seasons, they'd waited quite some time to say that they were doing a third, you know, they might even have lost some of their audience base because of the delay between the second and the third season, but they were making some really big decisions that was going to shift really what this, what the focus of the show was about really onto the problem that brought everybody in 
of the other races to Earth. And that was Tevkin's character and the Omec race as a people. Everybody else was food for the Omecs. And Tevkin was a Renaissance man beyond all Renaissance men. Like he had Leonardo da Vinci, he had Einstein, he had uh, Raphael, he had Caesar, he had all of those great thinkers and more than I cannot think off the top of my pointed head right now. He had all of those characters inside of him and he was leading his people somewhere like a bit of a Moses because his planet had been destroyed like all of the other planets. So uh, with that show, I came in as the production has already been established and built. The machine was already in place. And then comes this brand new character, Tefkin. And I was there for all of the tests. It wasn't where I come in and they go, okay, this is what you're going to wear. And this is how you're going to do it. It was really like, this is what we'd like to see on you. And how do you want to go? And so I had so much freedom as an actor in a television series that I've never had the pleasure of enjoying before. I could request things, you know, and I might get it. But here I could actually ask and it would be considered. And in most cases, it happened. And so loved it, loved it, loved (laughs) it from day one, all the way. All the way. And then I'm there for all those episodes. And it's a grand arc. I mean, it's the great arc for a character. He comes in, he's introduced, he could eat anybody he wants. Like, I mean, <laughs> physically. And he mentally, he could spar with anybody. Like, he was so intelligent. And he had all this regalness to him. And don't get a chance to play that as a black actor. You don't get to play regal characters. Maybe now we will, now that Black Panther's been out. Or, you know, that's changed stuff. But at that time, that character didn't exist. So, yeah, man, I went to town on that, for sure. I mean, Tevgan is a very meaty role, and I, I guess pun intended here. Uh, it's a very meaty role. He got a lot to do with that character. Uh, what did you think of his journey in terms of his character and how things ended up in the finale of the show? Spoiler alert, by the way, for folks who haven't seen the show. Yeah, let's not give it all the way. But, no, his arc is awesome. Like like I say, you know, he's... He, he, He's a political force in a place that had already had a political establishment. He now comes in and and just his presence changes everything. It just ripples all through all the storylines. And because of that, you know, I'm just I'm just standing in a room and the camera is picking up me. But how everybody is reacting to me, which is sort of like being the king. You don't have to act like the king. You're the king because of the way everybody's behaving towards you, bowing, curtsying, waving, nodding, kissing your ring. You know what I mean? You're you're just standing there. And that's what his arc just gets bigger and stronger and further and more far reaching until consequences come where he has to be eliminated. I won't give away by whom, but yeah, that has to happen. Check it out. It's a good one. It's a good one. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. 
You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder, what camera is that? Or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig, and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Conrad, let's talk Trek now. Uh, So you were in Star Trek Discovery. You got to put on some Vulcan ears. But let's talk first about how you got cast for Discovery. And and it's my understanding from the folks I've interviewed on this show before who have been to Discovery, a lot of them didn't even know they were actually auditioning for a Star Trek show at first. Is this the same for you? Oh, man, I'm wiping my brow as you said that, because that's what (laughs) I was about to say. You know, you're given some lines that are completely unrelated to anything, and you're going to make sense of it. And you're going to do the best you can. And you got no background information. And everything is code name and, you know, secret, hush, hush. And uh, I think I auditioned four or five times, maybe more. Mm. Tapes, going in, meeting, coming back, another tape. And then one day I get this call and I say, okay, you're going to be recurring and you're going to be in these episodes. And it's like, really? How did that happen? Because <laughs> I didn't even know I'd, this is what we were doing. And, uh, and there, there I am. And for me, a bonus was, you know, I had an experience where um, the producer, I'm going to have to look this up, but uh, who also wrote the episode, my first episode that I was in, and we were doing the scene, and it wasn't quite working for him on a certain level not anything to do with performance or technical. There was just something possibly in his writing and he didn't feel that the ideas were being expressed properly. So because we got to move the day along, let's fix that while we set up the shot. Let's set up the light and let me go over here and rewrite a three page scene and give it to you. And that will shoot that. And that I got to tell you, my friend threw me like, oh, now we're not doing the scene in a swimming pool. We're going to do it in a volcano. And we're going to, oh, wow, thanks. And I was a little upset, I got to tell you, but I knew this was, this was the real audition. And uh, 
I don't know how I did it, but I learned three pages of dialogue, which you know is not an easy task, in like three minutes. Jeez. And some divine intervention happened there because I remembered all the words as he wrote them. And then we were like, cut. And then I hear, Yahoo! Wow, that was amazing. That was great. Okay, that's work. Let's do it again. And uh, it was really trial by fire. And I'm really glad that it happened because it showed some, you know, dedication to the task. Because what was really apparent to me being on the show was like, let's not mess this up. Let's not be the weakest link in the Star Trek chain. You know, let's let's do this and let's do it really well. And let's, you know, everybody kind of enjoy what's happening at the moment. Yeah, that's kind of the consensus I've heard also about Discovery is that it's like one of the best sets to be on. Like everybody is very positive. It's a really uplifting kind of place to be. Did, was that the experience for you as well? Oh, without a doubt, it was like religious. It was religious. And I think everybody can identify with the community. Uh, and I'm not talking about organized religion and that it takes control of us or anything like that, but just that we can be a part of something that to me, you know, I work more on the spiritual level of things and I just really felt like this, we're all connected here in an, in a metaphysical way, in a real metaphysical way. And, you know, we're being talked to through this work in the person who had an idea over 50 years ago now. Right. So it, like, there's something that's being imparted to us, you know, through this work all the time. And everybody knows that everybody's very aware of that. Cool. It's very cool. So when did you find out you were going to be wearing the Vulcan ears? About two weeks before it all happened. Because like I say, you know, you didn't really know that's what you were auditioning for. I had no idea what the part was or anything like that. You know, I wish I could go back and play another part uh, that had maybe uh, something else uh, prosthetic-wise because it's... Uh, it, it is a great show. It's a great production. There's some great artists in all of the departments that are, you know, working on that show. And to be on shows like this, not that I, you know, I haven't been a big budgeted films and been a part of something that's also large, of course. But as we all know, Star Trek is something very, very unique in this world. You know what I mean? All these conventions that we have where we get to kind of connect with the audience and the cast. Um, the writers and so forth, you know, like it's, it's something very, very unique. I'm just curious if they let you bring the ears home after you're done shooting the scenes. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll leave that one at that. But speaking of, and what did you think the first time you saw the costumes and especially when you got oh, to the set, like, you know, this is a very different kind of Star Trek show. Oh man. I, I was so, I, okay. I, I put the costume on before I, you know, I, I put the costume on by myself in my dressing room. And I mean, I've had many fittings and you see it and it's always, you know, it's being transformed because it's got to be tailored and it's got to be fitted and it's got to have the stripe going over the shoulder in a very certain way. And it's got to fit right above the top pocket line. Like it's, you know, it's so incredibly tailored. And then you put this thing on and now you got the boots and now you got the ears and your eyebrows are going up and your hair is down and the makeup is on and I turned in the mirror just before I stepped out and I looked at myself and I'm telling you I could have cried for myself mm. because it was such it was like 
every kid has a fantasy, whatever it is, playing a sport, dancing a dance, playing an instrument, reciting a piece of poetry where you get through it and you accomplish something. So you all of a sudden as an actor turn and now to be part of a lexicon that I believe will live as far as Amadeus goes. You know, I'm part of that. And in that moment, that's when I recognize, damn, son, like you started over here and now you're over here. And that was, uh, that was, excuse me. Yeah, that was very momentous. That was a privately momentous moment. It really was. On the topic of your outfit and discovery, you know, a lot of folks who we've talked to who did The Next Generation or other older shows, uh, you know, they said that the uniforms would kind of ride up on them. Uh, how was your uniform? Is it comfy to wear? No, I would not call it day wear. Correct, of course. No, I definitely would not call it evening wear. It's a costume. You know what I mean? And it had to be in a way that is historically recognizable. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you're right. Uh, some of the uh, other actors complain how it rode up. Yeah, like I'm wearing something that is form-fitted with suspenders, and I got bootstraps pulling it the other way. So it's pulling one way and it's pulling the other way. But, man, when I'm standing on camera, look at that body. Like it looks like <laughs> they style that for everybody. You know what I mean? Like it's everything is designed, designed. So it's a, it's a trip. But that's, that's part of the part of the theatrics of it all you know what i mean it's the presentation of things and that's sort of the, that's why we watch that's where the fantasy comes from because it's so beautiful you're wearing really fine fabrics and you know you, people have put in hours hand stitching something together for you or making your boots by hand like come on who gets that done not me yeah. so to go to work and have somebody do that man i so appreciate it it's wonderful See, you just said something I didn't even know about. I didn't realize that, uh, I'm assuming from what you said, it sounds like everybody's wearing suspenders to keep their pants up. Is that how that works? It's a, it's to kind of keep the lines going in a certain direction. You know what I mean? Like, um, like unless your character has a pot belly, <laughs> nobody has a pot belly, unless your character has a pot belly. So we have to make sure that everybody who's in Starfleet, they look a certain way. That's That's the uniform of it. It's not just the communicator on the chest it's the whole thing it's the stripes on the arms it's the you know what i mean it's uh with the pockets pockets in the pockets you know what i mean it's, it's that's just the way it is there's now. no pockets in space no who needs pockets nobody's carrying anything who needs money we don't have money right yeah <laughs> <laughs> So Admiral Terrell is the character you played. He's in season one of Disco. And uh, I think other than the first time we meet you in, in that episode, Choose Your Pain, where uh, you don't have any lines, unfortunately, in that one, you have, but you do have three other appearances. They're all via hologram or computer screens where you're either, yeah. where you're giving orders to Captain Lorca, who was played by Jason Isaacs. And yeah. you know, I always find those particular roles, the roles that you have to play via hologram or, or via computer screen to be kind of interesting from an acting perspective. Because uh, you're basically in a room by yourself. So, I mean, what what is it like to do a scene like that where you're having a chat with somebody, but you've got really no one to even bounce off of? Well, the, the ones where you see me in the hologram, I'm actually in the room with Jason. Oh. I'm actually there. And the way that they technically did it, which, again, that's what I'm saying about the artistry of this show. When you go back to what William Shatner was doing, to what we're doing, you know, it's two totally different worlds. and maybe even three different worlds away, actually. But I was in the room, and Jason would go, 
okay, so I want to walk through him. So as he came towards me, I would stick my left foot back about a, you know, a step and a half and I'd lean back and I'd leave my <laughs> right foot in place so that I'd have a marker so I could come right back to the same spot. And he, and then he walks past me, literally stepping over my foot. And then I step back forward. And maybe the camera has like rack focus from me to him. So it looks like, you know, he's going through me and then they sort of, you know, draw me in because of the communication system that we're using. But all of those, I was in the room with him. Wow. Isn't That's that pretty something? amazing. Isn't that something? I would not have expected that. Yeah. No, uh, I was surprised too. And I'm kind of glad. But what I really wanted though was to be on the ship. I mean, I got to be on yeah. the set of the ship, but I really wanted to be on the ship and going somewhere with the crew. That's, that's, the, that's the trip that I wanted. But I'm very grateful for what they gave me, for sure. <laughs> so what, were all those sets on the same soundstage? I mean, were we able to actually at least even look at the uh, Discovery Bridge? Oh, yeah. No, like we shot the, those scenes where I'm with Jason. We shot those on the bridge. And we're in like his, his quarter, his office, his conference room. You know what I mean? We kind of like step over there, but no, I'm walking across the bridge all the time. And I remember the first time that I stepped onto the bridge, you know, the crew's working, everybody's hustling. We're trying to get it done. We're getting through the day. And I see the chair, the chair where the captain sits. And there's this tape right across it, like a do not cross sign. <laughs> and on the chair was a piece of paper that said, don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, they put that there because they knew I was going to sit my ass down in that so Discovery has such a great cast to him. You've got Sonequa Martin-Green, you've got Doug Jones, we have Jason Isaacs, as we mentioned. Uh, did you get to spend a lot of time with any of these folks when you weren't filming things? You know what? They got to watch me do my thing for once. But I did not get a chance to interact with them. Like my scenes, as you see, you know, I'm really with Jason and giving him hell and, you know, being that commander dude. But the crew was always around. I always, you know, yeah, I got a chance to eat with them. I got a chance to be in the prosthetic room with them, you know, and just having a ball. Like, it's so much fun. It's such a fun set. It really was. Really, really was. Everybody there was just wonderful. Loved it. Now, did you watch any of your appearances on Discovery? I did. I think I missed. There was one that I missed, but I, you know, I did see uh, the final sort of demise of it all uh, and still kind of waiting to see what happens with that reality. If I'm actually lost in space. That's what it, that's what it kind of feels like, uh, but yeah, no, it's a great show. It's a great show. So, how would you rate your performances? You know, you're you're an acting instructor, uh, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But you know, I'm just curious. You know, how would you have rated yourself and your performance on Discovery? I don't know, seven and a half out of ten, maybe if I'm lucky. <laughs> um, I was terrified. I was terrified a lot of the time. To tell you the truth, I really was because, like I said, I did not want to be the guy that dropped the ball. You know, I wanted to come in. I wanted it to be good. And I wanted it to be convincing. There's a, you know, there's an emotional restriction being a Vulcan. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, there's no, you don't show emotion. And for, for my character not to show emotion, like, that's, that's hard. I'm a human being. You know what I mean? I like to crack jokes. I like to be serious. I like to be hurt. I like to be vulnerable. Like, but as a Vulcan character, Troll doesn't have any of those qualities. So I had to stay within a very narrow lane of performance. And every once in a while you'd hear, Conrad, 
too much emotion. Let's do it again. You know, and so I'd be like three lines in, stop, go back. Nope, no, nope, you're emoting. Nope, 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 nope. That's, I, I got that a lot. I got that a lot. To find the character, though, that's, that's part of the thing. You know, you've got to step into a legacy of, you know, Leonard Nimoy. This is the way Leonard Nimoy. This is the Bible. This is what we're using. This is the model. This is it. Don't break the mold. Right. And now you got to play it that way. And that's hard to do for me. Anyways. Yeah, you really touch on something I think it's really important about those Vulcan characters. And Leonard Nimoy, obviously the perfect example. He's the icon for the Vulcans. Exactly. And I've been watching, you know, these days, the original series. I just watched the 2009 <laughs> Abrams film. I just saw the episode he did on uh, TNG. And so I, I basically got to see, you know, three different eras of Spock just in the last week or so. Right on. And I find it interesting because you're talking about how, you know, a Vulcan cannot emote, but that doesn't mean you talk like a robot. Exactly. And uh, Leonard Nimoy did a lot of different things to kind of not exactly emote, but to add character to it. So how did you find ways to make Admiral Terrell become a realistic person and not just a robotic sounding empty void? I think, and this is how, you know, I approach all the work. There's an intention behind everything. And so it's not necessarily about, I am just going to be didactic and let you know that this is the way it is. There is really a concern for the fleet. And I have to instruct Jason Isaac to get out there and get the job done and don't fuck around. Pardon my language. You know, don't make a mistake with this. So there's really, there really is uh, uh, an urgency. In, and so all of the frills of pleasantry, that's not on the table. That's not part of it. That's part, not part of the gymnastics we're going to use here. And so it's not that that difficult as I was trying to make it previously sound, but there is sort of like these are the lines, these are the lines you got to work between, and you got to find that range as an actor. That takes time. So, you know, I'm glad that I got more than one kick at the can to do it. You know what I mean? But did I have a characteristic move at that time? No, I don't think I did. Leonard Nimoy, you know, he could raise an eyebrow. He already had that, mm. so I couldn't take that one. You know what I mean? Did I want to like? <laughs> bring my finger up to the corner of my mouth. Mm, I think we've seen that one before too. So, you know, there's, there's, that's the thing about television. You got to work really quickly. All right. So Connor, I want to backtrack a bit and ask you about some other things that you worked on outside of Star Trek as well. Uh, and one that comes to mind is welcome to Marwin with Steve Carell. Yeah. You played Demarius Johnson, who was Mark yeah. Hogan camp's lawyer in that film. And you got to spend time working directly with Steve. So uh, just what's it like to work with Steve Carell? I mean, that's, again, another guy who I imagine keeping a, a straight face on must be very hard to do. Well, in this story, which is a true story, the character that he portrays is a man that was savagely beaten and was really emotionally damaged and will be damaged for the rest of his life. And he had... <clears throat> he had these sort of mental breakdowns. And when he had these mental breakdowns, when he was under any form of stress or duress in any way, he would retreat into this fictitious world that he had created as a World War I fighter pilot. And he was a hero and he only led a group of women. And the reason why he was leading women was because he was savagely beaten by these men who perceived him to be, you know, a homosexual, which he's not. And they beat him so badly that he retreats into this world. So Steve's character was so 
withdrawn all the time. There was no jokes. He barely talked to me, but that was part of the character. But we spent a lot of time together. We spent weeks together actually working on uh, my stuff, uh, which was the much more serious stuff of the film. Like it's sort of, it's all very, it's funny, it's entertaining, but I felt that my character in the world that I was working out of was the real world for Steve, the legal world, the finding retribution, getting justice for what had happened to this guy. I played, I played his counsel for sure. So our, our relationship was really, we were, we were still a lot because he was like a, he was like a, a wounded animal. If I moved too quickly, he would like retreat, you know? And so I always sort of kept my distance. But once we got to a place in the storytelling where, you know, the redemption is coming for him, then we totally changed. Then we became two men talking about our children. And that was wonderful. That was, that was wonderful. He's a, he's a great actor. I really enjoyed working with him. So he, he was staying basically uh, in character, more or less, for most of that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because he had to. Mm. I, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, especially when you're the lead of a film, uh, to let too much information in from the outside world that doesn't really pertain to the story and the world that we're living in in the moment you know, as we're working and the work goes on for months for, in his case, not for me, for me, yeah, it's like a month, couple of months, but for him, it goes on for months. And to keep that level of artistry up, you've got to maintain a certain headspace and letting in too much of everybody else's personal. I'm the same way on a set. You know, I like to greet people. I'm trying to be as pleasant as I can and honest with everybody but I try not to engage in such a level that it takes me somewhere else emotionally for myself or for them, because it doesn't serve the story, you know, that we're trying to tell right now. It takes me somewhere else. And I don't want to do that sometimes. So I get it when an actor is like that, not so much in character, just really trying to hold it, hold the container mm -hmm. for themselves. So outside of all the other things we talked about today, you were in one other very major sci-fi franchise, and that was Tron. Uh, and yeah. you appeared in Tron Legacy as the character Bartik. You're yeah. in Legacy and actually in Uprising. Uh, in fact, your character was even part of a short comic called uh, Solar Sailor Prisoners, where Bartik was the central focus of that story. And your scene, of course, in Legacy was mainly with uh, the, the great stage and screen actor Michael Sheen. It doesn't really get talked yeah. about as much as he should. Yeah, that, that's another like really huge production. Crazy sets, amazing costumes. What do you remember about your time working on the Tron series? $350 million. That's what I remember. <laughs> uh, no, well, no, honestly, uh, Michael Sheen at the top of the list for me because you know my scene was with was with him, so we spent a lot of time, you know, preparing, getting it done. And it was it took a couple of days to shoot that particular scene, so running up to it, the prosthetics for Bartik that he has to wear the scar, which is all pixelated on my face, like that. That in itself, I think that was two months just creating that. So meeting with the designer and getting this suggested, let's try that on and see how that looks. Okay, let's do this. All right, let's try it like that. Like that was a real process. Of course, you know, Joseph, the director, uh, the whole artistry and trip for him being on a, a, a set that was really, I think it was his, maybe not his first feature, but probably pretty close to 1A or 1B. How about that? And he's got this gigantic budget and he designed the sets 
and the costume, and he had the complete vision in his mind and where that camera had to go. And it was a 3D rigging, so there was a lot of equipment. And where there are equipment, there's a lot of people, you know, to move around. So there was, I remember, about 150 people just in the background, not even what you're looking at on camera. I mean, you look at that scene, there's a lot of people in that scene, probably upwards of 70 people in the scene. So there's a lot of people there. So when the story goes really quiet, you know, it earns it for sure. So it was very busy, very hectic. We got fight scenes, we got fight coordinators, we got stuff breaking. You got to be standing over here. You better be ducking. This is coming over your head and you better move over there because that's where you're supposed to be. If you don't, you're going to sue us. You know, it's just all (laughs) madness happening. But when you see it, it's, snap it goes by but it was a lot of days putting that together yeah like in that particular scene with michael sheen in fact that's basically like a party kind of scene there's so many people on, on the area so many costumes uh, the visual effects everything there it's just it's real stunning to look at real visually amazing yeah. film it really is it really is no just had like an amazing and, and and the other films that he's gone on to make you know with tom cruise i believe it's oblivion uh you know like stunning like he's got a real mind and he's got a real eye for things uh, and Bartek, you know, sort of, you know, again, a bit bombastic, I think, sometimes when I look at that performance, to be honest. But, you know, I was just, I was very excited to be there and be a part of something that, that was being celebrated by Disney. You know what I mean? Like, that was 25 years since the first one. And now they were doing this and they were launching all kinds of, you know, all kinds of product, really. Um, but, yeah, stunning. Amazing. Yeah, and speaking of the product for the Tron series at that point, you know, there were comics we mentioned, there was video games, there's also an animated series, and Bartik comes back for that, but he's voiced by Donald Faison and not yourself. So I was just curious, you know, were you approached the role? Was it a scheduling conflict? Or did they just go ahead and cast Donald and were just like, whatever? Yeah, I think it was more like that. Let's cast Donald and whatever. <laughs> no, mm. nobody nobody talked to me. Um, too bad about that. But, um, you know, man's doing a good job. What can I say? So on the topic of voiceover work, there is one other role that I just happened to see on the very top of your IMDb page right now, and that is Far Cry 6. That game is coming out 2021. Uh, at the time of this interview that we're doing, the trailer was just released very recently for it. Uh, what can you tell us, if anything, about what you're doing in Far Cry 6? Because I know, you know, Ubisoft likes to keep things very much under the vest, but can you give us any information about what you're doing in Far Cry 6? Man, I love how you did that. That was That's a great question, and I'm going to try to answer it. Uh, as best I can, um, based, you know, again, based on the trailer, which everybody should check out because I think the, the production values in this are incredible from what I can see as a gamesman. You know, like that, that stuff is taking it to another level again. Giancarlo Esposito, you know, it's, now actors are now getting an opportunity to, you know, be themselves in the game world. Uh, there's a couple of the games that I can't remember to reference but you know where the actors are themselves now and Giancarlo is playing one of those characters here as a dictator of a undescribed seems like a South American place that uh, you know he's a bit of a despot running and there's a revolution happening uh, and I'm part of the revolution you know I'm part of the opposite side but uh, I think that's all I can say for the moment all right, we'll leave it at that for now. So you guys have to just wait another uh, probably six months or so by the time this interview is published. And uh, yeah, pick up Far Cry 6. 
All right, so Conrad, outside of all the different roles you've been playing lately and the voiceover work we just mentioned, uh, outside of that, you have an acting school. You've got Coates & Company in Toronto. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that academy. I know right now things are probably a little different in terms of classes with all the stuff happening with COVID, but uh, tell us a little about Coates & Company. Coates & Company came to be about eight years ago because I was going back to school part-time to study psychotherapy, just something I was interested in doing didn't particularly want to be a psychotherapist. I thought maybe I could do group therapy or something, but I wanted to, you know, formally get some hours in. So this was at a master's level and I had to pay for it somehow. So I thought, well, why don't I just do some classes on a Sunday evening and the money that I get from that will help me with offsetting the cost of, you know, going to school. And so that's where it came from. And uh, in trying to put the school together, what I wanted to do was sort of have a conservatory style of a program that students would come to for six weeks. Uh, it would be three hours on a Sunday evening, six to nine kind of thing. And it didn't want it to be just about acting because what I understand from how I work as an actor that I wanted to really have somebody do voice. Voice was really important to me when I was training because it makes all kinds of connections between the body and your speaking, your breathing, your emotional state. It's all happening at the same time for me. And so uh, I met this man, Azar Stewart, and uh, I walked into this room. We were just talking about this the other day. I walked into this room and I saw him and I knew who he was and what he did. And I said, I need you to join my company. Because you're going to be the company part of the Coats and Company. And uh, he immediately agreed because he uh, saw what I was trying to do. And here we are eight years later, and we're still working together. In fact, uh, I was just teaching a Zoom class, which is what we're really into right now. That's because we have to be because of this COVID situation that we find ourselves in. So still trying to get actors to be prepared, be in the moment, stay relaxed, understand what you're talking about, you know, all those things. It's part of the creative life that I think I lead. So what do you think the number one thing is that actors come to you in terms of problems? What would you say is the number one problem that an actor would have with a role that they come to you for help with? Um, <clears throat> I don't think that they're really aware of it sometimes. Like they go, you know, I really worked on this. And I go, okay, great. So let me, let me see what you got. And they, they do it. And then uh, what I see is that there's, there's moments. There's moments all the way along in the scene, in the story. And what they're failing to hit is those moments. Those moments are not necessarily being spoken. You are doing the speaking. But it's in reaction to something that somebody else is speaking. And I find that those moments are what make a performance of what makes an audience want to watch an actor, watch somebody pretend to be a character, following the story, buy into it. Only thing that's going to make you be that compelling is how dynamic you are, how up and down, in and out, fluid, how much you take in, how much you let us in, how much you let us don't come in. Like There's a fluidity to that. And I don't find that young actors today know even what they're looking at when they're looking at a script. So I really am all about the word. And that's what Shakespeare gave me. I'm, I'm all about the word. But I don't play the word when I'm on camera. I play subtext on camera. And so I try to teach that. That's part of my thrust of, of 
training. So on the flip side of that, you've been around so many well-known actors throughout your long, prolific career. What was the greatest piece of acting advice or even life advice that another actor has given to you? You know, of the, of the really great actors, Douglas Campbell being at the top, you know, from Scotland, he's one of the founders of the Stratford Festival. Now over, Jesus, what is that? Almost 60 years ago. You know, I had a chance to work with him. He played the original Oedipus there. And when I worked with him, I worked with him for a bunch of seasons in different companies. And he was 75, I think, when I first met him. And I worked with him when he was well into his 80s. And uh, he said, because, you know, I was a young actor uh, in my 20s. And, you know... He says, it gets easier, my boy, as you get older. <laughs> it gets easier as you get older. And I think that that's a life lesson as much as it is an acting lesson. You become more confident in your skill and your power and your authority over what it is that you're doing. You can relax because you don't have to worry about what anybody else is thinking about you in terms of like judgment or anything like that or any kind of prejudice. You know, you're in the world of the arts, which is a little bit more open than it may be, say, than in a business environment. So you could be yourself a little bit more. And so as I've gotten older and as I've gone along, it has gotten easier in a certain respect. Harder in some ways, but easier in terms of the art of it for me as an actor. Okay, great answer. All right, so Conrad, for anybody who wants to potentially take some classes with you online or in person, whenever hopefully that reopens up again, or who just wants to follow you on social media, how can our listeners find out more about your school and yourself? Oh, wow, that's that's fantastic. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Conrad Coates. And for classes, Coates and Company, C-O-A-T-E-S-A-N-D, C-O-M-P-A-N-Y at gmail.com. And the site is just being uh, reworked right at the moment, but that'll be back up very shortly because um, I'm doing more Zoom classes right now. We only have like six to eight students per class. So it's sort of a gymnastic. So you get voice and body work with the czar, and then you get to work uh, a scene with me as well. And we cover a lot of audition type stuff. So that's keeping me very busy at the moment, actually, because actors are still, you know, I think Canada is going to open up before the States does in terms of productions. So Conrad, final question for the interview here. What's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, the community of people, like the people that I've met and the conversations that I've had. I mean, I know, I know in a weird way, you know, there is a you meet the person who you've watched on television. I get it. I'm a fan myself. I, I too get excited, but uh, there's this sort of underlying understanding of what the message is of community of acceptance and so forth. And that to me is, you know, as a black man, particularly living during these times, it's very violent. You know what I mean? Uh, it's it's very comforting to know that to people of the Star Trek universe, you're just like them. It's, it's very, very rewarding to be part of that. All right. So, Conrad, thank you so much for all of your time today. You've been super generous with all your experiences, your insight, 
all these great stories. So you know, we appreciate you for being a part of Trek Untold today. And uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing you again in the Star Trek universe. Anytime, Matthew, honest to God, anytime you can reach out to me to be a part of whatever it is you're working on. I don't mind it at all. It's a, it's a good thing. It's, it's, I like what you're doing. You know what I mean? And I want to, I want to support that. So thank you for asking me. Oh, thank you so much. And I look forward to the continued success of Coats and Company as well and everything else with your career moving forward. Amen. And so yeah, all the best to you. Thank you so much today. Stay safe. Bye. And that was our discussion today with Conrad Coates, who was as formative as he was entertaining. He's a real chameleon when it comes to his roles, and that's the mark of a great actor. One whose face you've seen a ton of times, but each time you see that face, it disappears into the role that that person's playing. The character of Admiral Terrell is a Vulcan, as we mentioned, and Vulcans are fairly common in the Star Trek universe. However, a person of color portraying Vulcan is still a relatively novel concept. Don't at me now, yes, we all know about Tim Russ as Tuvok, but beyond that, any Vulcans portrayed by black performers are usually just background extras and rarely with speaking lines. Marva Hicks and Ronald Robinson played Tuvok's wife and son respectively on Voyager. Brian Waller was a member of the Vulcan Council in the first J.J. Abrams reboot. And Brett Bartlett was a baseball player on Tacumbra's team in Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite on DS9. And as far as I know, that pretty much represents the end of Black Vulcans with speaking lines, or at least characters being prominently featured on screen. The rest have mostly been just that, just background characters. And as for Asian or Latinx people portraying a Vulcan in more than just being part of the ambience, good luck finding any. It's just an interesting footnote in the history of Star Trek, but it's one I hope is remedied through Discovery, Strange New Worlds, and all of the other upcoming Trek series. And you can't say they don't exist, because I've seen plenty of these types of people at Comic-Cons around the country, and they look pretty great to me. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. And shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. 